2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11 through 14. Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Uh, Welcome. Before we get started uh, this morning, I was just informed by our lovely children's director, Chesney Crouch, that she is in a significant volunteer crunch as we head into the summer months. And so she is making an appeal to any and all of you, whether you will be here for the entirety of the summer or just some small section of the summer, this would be an opportunity for you to love our children uh, and also to care for Chesney. She's in a bit of a panic. So she said she was going to post a note on the church Facebook page. Uh, would encourage any of you uh, to reply to that and volunteer to sign up, maybe just for one Sunday over the course of the summer. If we all chip in, our little ones will be loved well. And maybe as a note, a reminder, a little extra motivation if love is a bit thin in your heart, just recall the sweltering heat that is this space during the summer months and likewise that our children's rooms are air-conditioned. So... Um, I'm also planning to just be really boring and long all summer. So uh, go, go love our kids, uh, please. Uh, look on Facebook for more information on that. Well, welcome to church. Welcome to the Painted Door. My name is Mark. If you're new here, uh, this is Trinity Sunday. Really, of course, all Sundays are Trinity Sunday for Christian churches. But about a thousand years ago now, Christians began to mark this particular Sunday, the Sunday following Pentecost, for special focus to be placed on the doctrine of the Trinity. This doctrine of the Trinity is a uniquely Christian teaching, and all of the other Christian teachings, all other teachings that we ever work through as a church or as the greater church around the world stem from this central doctrine of the Trinity. Really, this doctrine of the Trinity is what flavors all of our other doctrine. It's what renders all of our other doctrine uniquely Christian. If you disconnect any other teaching of the church from the central doctrine of the Trinity, it ceases to be Christian, ceases to be uniquely Christian. For example, the teaching to love our neighbor, many philosophies, many religions, perhaps even most all philosophies and religions, teach that we should love neighbor. But it's in connecting that doctrine, in rooting that doctrine to the Trinity, that it becomes uniquely Christian for us, because only in Christianity does the call to love neighbor stem from the eternal neighborly love of God. See, God is an eternal community. He's an eternal neighborhood, if you will, an eternity of three persons living in perfect communal love with one another. This is a uniquely Christian conception of God, and because of this conception, we can say that God defines love. God is love, 
because in and of himself there is a perfect lived out expression of love. Any other deity might be able to make the claim that he or she or it is loving. Some deities might be able to claim that they are, for example, the god of love. But in all such cases, there still requires uh, an object to love, an object to manifest that love. Only the Christian conception of God, only the Christian understanding of our triune God, has within it this view of God as expressing love within himself, as the very definition of love. In fact, the relationships within our triune God between Father, Son, and Spirit those relationships are love. Not those relationships are loving. Those relationships are love. They are the definition of love. There is no such thing as love apart from or outside of those triune relationships between father, son, and and spirit. So it is that when we encounter this teaching, this call, this Christian call for us to love our neighbor, we are not hearing God say to us, try to be as loving as I am. That's ridiculous. There is no such thing as love apart from God. In and of ourselves, we do not have any resource to love like God. We do not have any resource to participate in love at all. When God calls us to love our neighbor, he is calling us to live in him. He is calling us to enter into him. He is calling us to become participants in him. In order for us to participate in life, we must become one with the life and being of God. He is welcoming us into his eternal divine communion. And so the call to love our neighbor then, flavored by the doctrine of the Trinity, becomes a uniquely Christian call. In fact, this is what it means to be a Christian. It is to be swept up into the Trinitarian life. It is to lose yourself into the life of God, to become one with God, such that your life is no longer your own to go about living with all of your inadequacies and shames and failings. No, all of those things have now been swallowed up into the person of God. By faith, Christian, you are lost in him. You are one with him. You have communion and union with him. All your weaknesses and failures no longer define you. Now God defines you. You have been conjoined to the body of Jesus. You are now a part of Jesus. And all that defines Jesus now defines you. You are one flesh with him. Do you believe that? It's true. It's yours to live in. It's yours to believe. It's yours to walk in. What if 
our sleepy, apathetic approach to God was suddenly dispatched? What if we suddenly woke up to this reality? What if it flooded into our consciousness that we were not just living our lives with a knowledge of God or with an awareness of God or with a conception that God was for us or somehow on our side? What if we were day by day, moment by moment, aware that we were in God? That we were one with God, conjoined to God, participants in his very life. Can you imagine the implications of that reality? Well, that's really what the entirety of the New Testament is trying to make sense of. Because that's the gospel. The gospel is the announcement that this separation, this distance between humanity and God has been not just bridged, it has been set aside for all ages that we have been swept up into him, made one with him, married into him even. The New Testament writers are trying to make sense of this radical new understanding of who we are, of how it is that our being works itself out in light of this connection to God. Imagine if it began to work itself out in you, if you were roused from that sleepy apathy that so often defines our spiritual life, our spiritual awareness. What if you saw this in the full light of day and began to live in accord with it? Surely many among us have glimpsed this reality at times and could testify that when we glimpse it, it is as though chains fall from us. Because we are free from that mad scramble to try and build an identity for ourselves. We are free any longer from the need to manufacture a righteousness all our own or to apologize for the foul things that escape out of our frame. We have no more need to make ourselves because all that we are is already whole and complete and perfect in the Lord Jesus. We have no need to act out that silly little thing that my dog Dexter does when I take him on walks and he relieves himself. He then will scratch the ground as though he's covering up his droppings And of course, nothing goes over them. I sort of watch him, like, what are you doing? But he doesn't look back. He just assumes, oh, this is a helpful thing that I'm doing, covering up these foul droppings behind me and moving forward. We are that ridiculous in our attempts to cover up our failures, our inadequacies. No one's being fooled except ourselves. When we awaken to the reality of our oneness, our unity with God, our connection to him, our eternal participation in him, we're rescued from all of that nonsense. We are really rescued into a place where we can be heroes. True heroes. Not false heroes not the type of hero that is enamored at the prospect of claiming heroism for oneself. 
That's a worthless sort of hero, but a true hero, truly heroic in the sense of pouring oneself out in love with reckless disregard for your own happiness or reputation. That's heroism. That's the life of Christ. And that's what we are rescued into as we awaken by faith to this new identity that we have in him. That's how the apostles of the first century viewed their own lives. Have you ever wondered as you read the book of Acts, where did this courage come from? Where did this recklessness for their own lives come from? This disregard for their own safety and reputation and comfort come from? It came from this conviction that their lives were no longer their own, that they'd been swept up into the full and complete and rich and glorious life of God. This was the conviction of the apostles, and it was the longing in their hearts to see this same kind of awakening transpire among the peoples they were ministering to in the churches that they were planting in the first century. For the past eight months, we've been listening to that longing as it spills out of the mind and heart and pen of the Apostle Paul. Specifically, we've been looking at his letter, one of his letters to the church in Corinth, wherein he is seeking to stir up this kind of faith, to reawaken this church that has lost sight of who they are in Christ. And today, we find ourselves at the very end of this letter, eight months of looking at the book of Second Corinthians, albeit with breaks for Advent and Lent. But now we are on the precipice of completing this great book, looking at the final lines here of Paul. He has just a few sentences left to leave the Corinthians with what he most wants them to think on at the end of the day. He is aware as he finishes this letter that it's likely he will not be able to communicate with the people of Corinth for some time after this, months, perhaps even years. And so this is what he leaves them with as he writes to them in these final verses. He says this in verse 11 of chapter 13. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Okay, now this is telling. Paul has just spent 12 plus chapters exerting his authority in the minds of the Corinthians, pleading with the Corinthians to trust him as a legitimate apostle, demoting the false teachers, the new leaders that have emerged in their midst, taking these false teachers on, deriding their false teaching, calling the Corinthians to remember the true teaching of the gospel. But here in these closing lines as he leaves them, what is most on his mind and heart to communicate to them has only to do with the interpersonal relationships among them. He wants them to aim for restoration with one another. He wants them to enter into each other's brokenness, to comfort one another when they are in pain, to live in one accord, to live at peace with one another. 
This is telling because I think it's very easy for us oftentimes to forget what the church is at her core. We can easily become distracted by the peripherals of church, by the teaching or the singing or the praying or the socializing or the food. Those are all, of course, wonderful things that are richly enjoyable. But what is the church at her core? It's easy for us to forget that at her core, the church is a manifestation of God on the earth. Perhaps better said, the church is the manifestation of God on the earth. The church is a bastion of Trinitarian life, of the Trinitarian life. She's an expression of who God is, of the life of God. And what do we know of the life of God? Who is this triune God? What are these relationships like within him, Father, Son, and Spirit? We know that there is no disunity between them. We know that there is distinction, but there's not separation. We know that there's mutual submission, but not subjugation. We know that there's authority, but there's no hubris. We know that within the life of God, within the triune life of God, they don't play favorites. They don't choose which or the other they prefer. There is a constant mutual giving of each person to the other. A constant pursuit of one another. A willingness to pour oneself out in love for the other. This is how the Trinitarian life works, and it's eternal. It has always been the case. There's no callous indifference to each other, no relational intrigue. Father, Son, and Spirit harbor no bitterness whatsoever. They are ever moving toward one another. Paul wants the Corinthians to remember, you are partakers of this Trinitarian life. This Trinitarian life, this communion, this unity of God, it's yours to live in. The way that God is defined is the way your own community, your own church can be defined as you are caught up in him no longer go about seeking what only serves you, but now lay down your life for one another. Aim for restoration, he says. Enter into each other's pain. Live in one accord. Of course, he is speaking here of something absolutely supernatural. This is not our natural bent. Naturally, when we collide with relational difficulty, when relational implosion happens, or even just relational tension, when you start to feel yourself unable to connect with someone, start to feel as though they are indifferent to you or callous toward you, start to feel apathy from someone, 
anytime there is any sort of relational challenge, our natural bent is to withdraw. Our natural bent is to seek to avoid that. It's uncomfortable. It's disquieting. We'd rather move on and find where the water runs downhill, find those relationships in our community that are easy, that are simple, that make sense. Find those people with whom we have natural affinity that we can build light-hearted friendship with. And so we withdraw from the hard places, withdraw from the hard relationships, or perhaps we lash out in such a way as to put that relationship to an end. And so spare ourselves from this ongoing intrigue, angst, difficulty, hardship. This was incredibly surprising to me in the first couple of years that I was a pastor. When you're a pastor, I think maybe you have a unique perspective on just how much relational tension and discord and pressure is present in the church. I experience a lot of that tension with many of you. My wife, chief among you, probably. My dog, a close second. But it was surprising to me when I was first a pastor just how much there was this relational difficulty, how often hard conversations became necessary. I can remember one moment several years back now, I got into a relational space with someone in our church, and it only seemed to go from bad to worse to worse to worse. Every word out of my mouth only seemed to make things more complicated. There seemed to be no restoration in sight. I remember going to meet with this person on a spring evening and walking toward this person's apartment and this feeling of overwhelming dread coming over me. I wanted nothing to do with this. Every bone in my body wanted to flee or find at least some clever way to circumnavigate this exchange that I knew was at hand. I remember praying in that moment to God, just help me survive this conversation. But as I was praying, it actually occurred to me that survival isn't the point. Death is. And I had this terrifying thought. What if this is church? What if this is what really is church. These moments when I want nothing to do with it and every part of me wants to retreat from it and I'm at my wit's end 
I can tell you that in that moment, it surely felt like death. Felt like anguish. I'm not sure that physical anguish, even of the worst sort, can compete with relational anguish. I think relational anguish, the hard places of relationships, may well be the place of greatest suffering in our lives. That's certainly been true to date in my life, perhaps in yours. But what if this is church? What if this is when church really begins to happen at that very moment when we are absolutely convinced that everything is going wrong? What if that's the whole point? What if that is the Trinitarian life that God has for us, moving toward one another no matter what the personal cost may be? being poured out, sometimes in the most dreadful ways. Naturally, I know every one of you know and can relate to moments where there is that kind of relational discord, relational pain and difficulty. We are always convinced in those moments that something is going horribly wrong when our relationships implode in that way. It feels like death Everything wants to withdraw. Everything wants to go find a place of safety. Paul says to the Corinthians, aim for restoration. Paul says, face it. He says, sit in it. He says, move toward it. Go into those fires. Why? Because the God of love and peace is with you. He closes this letter this way. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. There it is. The Trinitarian life. This is what is on the mind and heart of Paul in his final words to the Corinthians. We have entered into this oneness, this communion with the Lord by way of the grace of Jesus. We have come into it so that we might share in his life and his love, the love of the Father that stops at nothing to pursue relationship even with those who have betrayed him. And we are now partakers of of that life, partakers of that love by way of the fellowship of the Spirit that dwells among us and in us. Can I ask you, who are the people in your life presently that you have withdrawn from? Who are the people that you are avoiding in some way? What are those most painful relationships that you have washed your hands of that you no longer spend emotional energy on that you want to leave behind you 
maybe scrape the ground to cover over them. We all have them. Maybe people in this very church, it may be people in your family, it may be people from a past community, past city, maybe co-workers. Those places of relational fire. Can I tell you all the dread and horror of those relationships, all the fear that you may have in facing them, all the anxiety that comes from regret or hurt or loss, none of that defines you. None of that is who you now are. You have been rescued into the Trinitarian life such that you are now free to walk into those places of relational fire, to sit there, inadequate as you may be, with no skill of how to navigate your way forward from that place, but simply the love and patience of God, the courage of God to endure the fire of it. This is who you now are. This is the life that we are rescued into, Christian. We no longer must hide our face from those sticky, dangerous, choppy waters. We are free to move toward people in a way that is otherworldly, that is supernatural. This is who you are by faith in Christ because, of course, this is who Jesus is. This is who Jesus is. It's who he has always been. He is one who tracks down those who betray him. He is one who goes into that fiery place of irreconcilable differences and sits there and bleeds. He's one who faces his own betrayers, forgives his own murderers, endures all of the hardship and agony of being in relationship with people bent only on hurting him. And his life has been given to you. His life has been shared with us. We can love like that. We can walk in that kind of reckless disregard for our own happiness, for our own reputation. We can move toward one another, pursue one another in all the pain of it. We are free to live in the Trinitarian communion of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the salvation that you have given freely to us, shared freely with us. We thank you for your life. Help us by your spirit. Fill us with courage to live in you.
to live united to you, to be people of love like you. Father, I pray for the relationships that are imploding or lie in ruins behind us. I pray you would stir us and animate us to prayer, to consideration, to look carefully again at those scorched places, to notice all that you would have us notice there, to notice our own inadequacies, to look without blinking at our own failures, to trust in you to cover us, and that you will not let shame cover our faces. Help us to be a people who pursue one another in these ways. In Christ's name, amen.